Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. Another Sunday, another mailbag, another very, very special episode. You're welcome, fools. No, I'm kidding. Thank you, though, for sending those questions and comments in. I will give you the details as to how you can do that in a minute, but I have something more important to do. I was looking around for someone who founded and ran a private online investment club, and I couldn't find anybody. So I've got Andrew Page from strawman.com. How are you, buddy? Most people aren't so silly. So um, did, yeah, I'm good. So I did Very there, good. I sort of twisted it around and... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did, I liked it. I liked it was it. something, mate. I'm Keep, trying very Keeping it hard. fresh. I'm trying keeping very hard. Um, mate, what did you think of the election result? Um, <laughs> <laughs> we are, of course, I wish I knew. Look, as, as, <laughs> as we've, we've long shattered any illusion, we I'm, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I'm either I'm either preparing to move to New Zealand yes. or I'm dancing in the streets. Let's just put it that way, and people oh, can okay. infer from that what they what they will. Interesting, big big call. I look. I I was. I thought it was an interesting result. I thought it was fascinating. I think the uh, the polls were were intriguing. Um, yeah, just real amazing. Hey, amazing. Whew. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we are as I said pre-recording this one on Thursday. We have no idea what happened yesterday. By the time you're listening to this, you perhaps, dear listener, are either like Andrew moving to New Zealand, dancing in the streets or maybe just kind of getting on with life and realizing that no matter who we vote for a politician always wins i am i am hoping to be less disillusioned this electoral cycle uh, not because of whoever might or want to be in government just because a pox on both their houses that i ranted about on friday if you missed that rant either do yourself a favor or don't go back there depending on which way you, you feel about my high horse rants but uh, none of that mm-hmm. because today we're going to get stuck into your questions which frankly are far more interesting uh and we are going to promise to be at least a little more direct and honest than some of our politicians. So you've got that going for you. We are the mm-hmm. perfect antidote to a federal election. Well, you can't you can't vote us. Well, I guess you can vote vote us out. You just don't, don't listen Stop to us. So yes. I take that back. What's it? They, don't they, vote us what, out. What, what, what do they say? <laughs> the only thing worse than being hated is being ignored. Yes, so true. <laughs> All right, mate. Um, we've got some. Res- that great, really, really great questions. And you'll like this first one, mate, because this one is all about you. Patrick says, hi, Scott and Andrew. Another question for the wonderful podcast, if I may. You may. Patrick says, Andrew often talks about asymmetric outcomes with the analogy of a flipped coin. This means there is a probability, a 50-50 probability of a good and bad outcome. I've seen uh, a lot of less wise punters talk about asymmetric upside, but I often think the coin analogy doesn't apply because one side might work out and the other is very likely to go pear-shaped. So my question is, how do Andrew and Scott think about asymmetric upside, e.g. with Bitcoin? Yeah, oh dear, sorry. <laughs> yes, it might go gangbusters, but how does one assess the probability that this will work out well? Thanks and love your work, Patrick. So I mm. love this question, mate, because asymmetric outcomes imply there is a greater chance of one particular outcome than the other, but there's two parts to any outcome when we think about probability. There are the Mm. odds of an outcome and there is the size of the outcome itself. Mm. So a 50-50 outcome means there's a 50% chance of one of two outcomes. doesn't always mean the same payoff though. If I had a 50-50 outcome- Heads I might get $100, tails I might lose 50 cents. So it's still a 50-50 chance but Mm. an an asymmetric outcome, even a 50-50 chance. So there is the probability and there is the size of the mm. of each outcome. And, of course, there's never just two. There's a range of outcomes, right? It's, a, it's always on a spectrum, these things. Humans talk in binaries because it's easier. Win, lose, make a lot, lose a lot. Um, 
But the reality is a loss is probably going to be somewhere between minus something and minus 100%. And a win is going to be something somewhere between slightly positive and, you know, squillion dollars, uh, lottery ticket mm. stuff, as you said on Friday. How do you think about asymmetric outcomes? And to, specifically, to, to Patrick's point, how does one assess the probability that something will work out well? This I think you. about it a lot. It's a real, it's a real core consideration. How for do you not do just it? investing, but just Sorry. in life? Yeah, right? yeah. You know, it's it's like uh, you know, base jumping. <laughs> There's an asymmetric <laughs> outcome, right? Oh, for anyone out there who's into base jumping, it's yeah. like you know. Pretty good, pretty good odds that I land safely on the ground. But yeah. if I don't, you know, there's a big downside there. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, well, so it's, it's I Buffett's, do- Buffett's line about Russian roulette. He said, even if you have a million chambers, you still wouldn't play the game. Yeah. Because the the outcome is death. But if like, yeah, what what odds would you need to, to play a Russian roulette? I mean, if I guess if you, you know, if you're a gang a gang land kingpin or something, if you want to make a point, mm-hmm. I, I mean, there are people who differently. Wired brains to ours, but Buffett said I wouldn't. I wouldn't play Russian roulette for all the money in the world because even with a million yeah. chambers, I still wouldn't do it. How do you think no. about it, mate? Yeah, I, I think about it like that. Um, I, I think that what we're really getting at here, and I just encourage people to do a bit of googling. Um, in Google, the term expected value, mm. and that's what we're really talking about yep. here: the odds of something happening multiplied by the outcome of that that event. And then add that to the uh, probability of it not happening versus what the outcome is in that scenario. And that's called expected value. And what you want is positive expected value. So when you go to the casino, there is a negative expected value. Mathematically as true as anything that can be true. The longer you play, the more likely you are to lose because the games are structured that way. Yeah, the casinos... (laughs) They're not a philanthropic organization, right? <laughs> Surprisingly enough, yes. They are. They are guaranteed to win yep. uh, 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 over enough, enough flips of the coin or yep. whatever stupid game you're playing, mm-hmm. um, and and that's how we have to think about investing. Now, the the advantage that the casino has is that they are operating. I'm going to forget the term mathematicians mm-hmm. use here, so someone can correct me. But they they are operating in closed systems or some. They're, they're operating in, in in situations where the odds are absolutely knowable. Yeah. So I know uh, two cards in a deck, four suits, thirteen cards, all, all that stuff. It's, it's all the the, ga- the rules are set out. Um, the the blackjack you the dealer has to hit on something, stand on something else. These things are, yep. are very knowable and can be calculated. Yeah, the mathematical space is is you know you know the territory exactly what can happen. But with with our game uh, of investing in shares, well, mm. there's it, it, we can't exactly define. De- define all of the different scenarios and yep. we can't define what what's what happens in each of those scenarios mm-hmm. so it's a really great question because you just you you're forced into guessing yep. and i yep. probably should use the term forecasting and analysis because it makes you sound a lot smarter <laughs> but let's, let's call a spade <laughs> a spade right. guessing right yeah, yeah, yeah. um bitcoin's a great example right yeah. so like there's a you know maybe there's a certain odd that it works out there's a certain odd that it doesn't if it doesn't it's zero if it does it's is it ten million a coin? Right, right. You know, is it a hundred thousand? I don't know. That's that's what that, that's what makes it super, super, super difficult. Um, but it's useful. There, are, there are things that are unknowable, but are still useful to think through because the the very act of thinking through it is in is informative, mm. and at least gives you an idea of what kind of things need to happen under uh, you know for it for it to work out well. Mm. Um, so. That's really going to be an unsatisfying answer, and <laughs> and but 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 think through it. Yep. Think think. You know, I don't want to go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Let, let's talk about a, um, um, <laughs> a, a biotech company. Yep. So st- st- statistically, historically speaking, you know, there's pretty good odds that it won't work out because it's just they're doing very very difficult mm-hmm. um, stuff. 
Um, but if it but if it does, it, it's going to go 10x, 100x, 50x, something like that yeah. magnitude. It's going yeah. to it's going to be really, really, really wonderful. Um, <laughs> I'm really struggling here, mate. I'll Maybe you can help me in. out. I'll throw some yeah. in and you can come back to it. Um, it is really, really tough, Patrick. So here's so the, the first thing, Anna, I've said many, many times, some of our favourite um, lines, be roughly right rather than precisely wrong. Yes. So you can't, you can't, you absolutely can't know. You literally can't know. And I, I, again, to your, you know, we've used a lot of ticket example before of, you know, you said on Friday, the best investment ever would be a lot of ticket if it comes off because you pay $2.50, you get a squillion dollars. We mm. actually all know what the odds of that are too. You can literally calculate those odds. Yeah. And when it comes to investing, you don't, you can't know the the outcome. So I'll start with a couple of things. Firstly, the most you can lose is 100%. The most you can make is in theory, infinity, it's unlimited. Now it's not literally, I mean, I can't be the whole earth, but there's a, there's a big upside potential. So that's already... The idea of investing equities gives you the chance of an asymmetric outcome in in the outcome size. The probability is very different and it's different for each company. There is no easy way to do it. There's really no easy way to do it. I'll give you a good example. We I did some work years and years and years ago. In fact, it was 2000 and... What was it? Oh, I can't remember now. Whenever whenever Kevin Rudd was back as um, as the opposition leader trying to, trying to win government, or was he back as PM about to lose it? Can't remember which one. Whatever it was, um, and they talked about they talked about changing the rules for uh, salary packaging, and Macmillan Shakespeare shares went through the floor, and so uh, a colleague, a former colleague now, and I, Joe Moga, who used to run our Lakehouse Funds business, um, we sat down and literally a decision tree and said, okay, what are the odds? Do we think roughly that Labor get reelected? And if they are, what is what is the what are the two range? What are the range of outcomes for Macmillan Shakespeare's profitability? And so we did the math. We went, okay, well. Right now, it seems very, very, very likely that the Liberal Party gets elected. I can't remember if it was elected or re-elected now. It's funny, isn't it? Um, and so it was like, whatever the odds were, 80%, whatever, whatever the number was. And if it, if it happened with Millen Shakespeare's shares, we're probably going to go back to where they were previously, and that was about 100% upside. And we went, okay, well, what if they don't get elected? Okay, well, there's X, and what's going to happen to the share price? Well, it's already factored in almost a, a very high likelihood of it happening. So the share decline might be another 20 or 30%. And so we went, okay, well, hang on, there's a 10 or 20% chance of a 30% decline. And there was a eighty percent chance of a double, and that's just a nice worked example where we didn't know that very, odds, but we very assigned, positive expected value, right? And we just assigned some mm. some guesses. So look, I, I don't think I don't think you can know, and I, I, I guess I would encourage you and all of our listeners, Patrick, just to to think roughly through this rather than specifically. So you can't yeah. know. Um, I'm trying to give a good example, but let's take uh, let's take Woolies. Woolies is a really really good example, right? Mm. Because the range of outcomes is reasonably small. So it's, it's, I'm cheating a little bit. Mm. Um, Woolies grocery business, Woolies and Coles have the grocery business to themselves. Their sales over the fullness of time are probably going to grow at something like, as, as, as a combined entity, we'll talk about market shares in a sec, probably going to grow at something like inflation plus GDP growth, sorry, inflation plus population, roughly, mm. right? Population growth, you know, unless we're going to all of a sudden eat more baked beans than we used to, unless... I know Chico rolls from the from the local takeaway. Uh, probably not going to happen meaningfully. Take COVID out of this, of course. Um, so what's going to happen? Okay, well, p- population going to grow or decline. Okay, cool. So we'll have more people eating baked beans rather than people eating more baked beans. So let's go with that. And price will go up by a little bit because they can. So a couple of percentage points for price and a couple of percentage points population. Great, four percent. That's a reasonable estimate of the sort of up the, the sort of you know what would be a, a straight through the middle. Best, case, best guess, best case outcome. Now you might say, okay, well, Woolies has got a chance of 
uh, taking a bit of share from Coles and maybe they take a bit of share from Takeaway or something else or Aldi or IGA or something else. On the other side, maybe Coles takes share from them. And so you start saying, well, okay, now the range of revenue outcomes are between 2 and 6%. Okay, cool. So now we've got some ideas and a range of outcomes. And you can say, well, the chance that it's permanently much, much more, they're going to keep taking share from Coles, not very high. Chance going to permanently lose share from Coles, not very high. So maybe there's a, and again, this is pure spitballing, which is exactly what I would do. 20% chance, 6%, 20% chance it's 2%, 60% chance it's 4%. There you go, three outcomes. And what happens if it happens? Well, I can roughly model margins and say, if it's 4%, it's this, if it's 2%, it's that, if it's 6%, it's that. And that's my range of outcomes. Mm. And then I can say, well, you know, that, that gives me a level of profit on each of those outcomes. Again, I know this is, I'm rushing through this, but it's otherwise it's boring, boring audio. Um, but you get you get a sense of what the range of outcomes might be, the probability of each, and it's it's pure thumb suck, mate. It's best guess based on what you know about a business. It's all you can do. Really, is all you can do. I promise you. Um, now, with something like a Bitcoin or a tech company or a miner, um, you know, people do this all the time with stage three, stage two, stage one trials. There's a known percentage of stage one trials that go to commercialization. And there's stage two and stage. Doesn't mean you'll get it. And that's my last point, mate, is think about portfolio rather than individual stock. Because when you're, you'll be absolutely wrong in every single assessment you make. But if you do it enough over enough companies, over long enough, then the, the sample error gets reduced because you're not doing it on one. We've said before, if you toss a coin once, 50-50 chance of a head or tail, but you toss it once, you're getting 100% heads or 100% tails. You don't get a chance for that, that to play out. So do it over a portfolio, over a large enough number of examples that you let that probability actually play out rather than expecting one company. Because... You know, whatever the expected value is, you won't get that. Almost guaranteed. Because the odds can't play out that way. It can't both have it can't both fail and succeed. It's either gonna fail or succeed. You've just got to work out what the odds are uh, that you get a decent return as a result. Anything else coming to you while I was rambling away, mate? No, I think you covered it well. You, the, the the take home here is it, it's valued it's valuable to think through this at a high level without getting into the specifics and remember, yes. Rem- yes. remembering that you're making guesses. But what it will inform you is yes. as to what, what needs to kind of Great happen, yep. right? Yeah, yep. Great point. And, you know, it, it, it'll, it'll basically, you, you, when you start looking at it, particularly mm-hmm. um, some of the smaller cap, earlier stage companies, it's kind yeah. of like you either need a very high chance of success mm. or a big enough upside <laughs> yeah. to rationalise. That's what it says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing is, is that you need to, Flip that proverbial coin enough times because on mm-hmm. in in a single instance it's kind of meaningless expected value. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, it doesn't matter what the odds are. I flip a coin once, I'm going to get heads or tails. Yeah. It's, bi- it's exactly. entirely binary. Yep, must be. Yep. This this maths only works out when you do it enough times. So, yep. but it is useful to think through. Hope that helps. This, 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 I guess I'll put it in the. I flip it around. I think a lot of the time my negativity on certain companies mm. is not because I think the businesses are awful or that. It's kind of like, well, you know, if it kind of works out well. Yeah. You know, maybe I get a slightly better than market average return and, and if it doesn't, I lose half my money. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of those that asymmetry that's out in the market that, that's just as important as looking for the positive skew on things. It's yeah. kind of like, I, 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 you know, I feel like that was the case for, for Woolies at sort of 40 bucks or, or the mm-hmm. banks. We've talked about the banks quite a lot as well. People think, oh, you hate the banks. You think they're all going to collapse. It's all doom and gloom. It's like, no, it's just that the, the asymmetry is the wrong mm-hmm. way around. It's like we, 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 we muddle through and they go okay or they don't. We have a recession and some kind of nasty thing happens and I lose half my money. That's, that is yeah. not the kind of expected yeah, value exactly. I want. Exactly. It's also worth saying, I think, that expected values are fine, but at a portfolio level, uh, it's you know, if there's a, is the 5% chance of going to zero as we started talking about, that might be too high for most. Certainly at a portfolio level, I wouldn't take that chance at all. 
Mm. If you if you if I could bet my entire portfolio, and if I won, I got a five x return. If I lost, I lost it all. I would not take that bet. You couldn't make me take that bet. Mm. Now five x your portfolio. Wow, that's massive. Mm. Uh, going back to square one is too expensive. Now if I if I was eighteen, I had a thousand dollars and you offered me a five x rise. Well, maybe I'll take it because I got you know another mm. forty something. What is it? Fifty years of, of work life to, to make it back. Mm. But I'm not that old. Andrew's not that old. Although you know we are old. Um, but you know, and now betting my portfolio. If it, if it wins, I'm a genius. Even even at five to even at five to one, not a single chance in the world. Ten to one, I wouldn't do it. If you offered mm. me just ten x my portfolio or lose the lot, I wouldn't do it because the cost of being wrong is too big. So again, even though the expected value of that deal would be positive, getting to toss it once, as Andrew said, and you know heads or tails, and I if it's heads, I get five x. If it's tails, I lose a lot. Even if the expected value there is, it's literally two and a half x, right? That's the way the maths works out. You couldn't mm. make me do it. Would not would not touch it with a barge pole. Would you? No. Okay. <laughs> the way you're looking there, thoughtful. Maybe he's going to say you would. Let's get to a question I from agree. Tom, mate. He says, "Hey Scott, I listen to the podcast every week. Thanks, guys, for doing it." To get the result, he asks, as per the Vanguard index chart you talk about, I do. Uh, is it as simple as putting ten grand into? And then he says, uh, three, four, uh, Vanguard, VTI for the top line USA shares, VAS for Australia, VAP for property, VGS for international for the 30 years. Cheers, Tom. He says, I know past performance isn't future performance, et cetera. Just trying to keep it simple. It's a good question, Tom. Um, I'll answer this one first, Ram, and you can jump in. Um, the details are actually on the bottom of the Vanguard index chart. They do take specific uh, classes of assets. I'm pretty sure none of those indices uh, would actually match it directly. I, I think, for example, the it might be the ASX 200 that they use because that's the premier index, even though VAS is the Vanguard Australian shares ETF for the ASX 300. So there are different there are different properties. You've also got to account for brokerage and taxes and management fees and all that kind of stuff. So is it as simple as matching it? No. If you were going to try and get close, those four ETFs would be would be perfectly fine to get a to create your own version of a a, a pale imitation or not or actually a pretty good imitation but still an imitation of the Vanguard index chart itself. For those who don't know, Google Vanguard index chart, you'll see the power of ten grand invested over thirty years. Uh, so, Tom, if you were going to from this point try to get the the same result as those four indices over that period of time, yes, you could use something like those. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend each of them. Uh, I wouldn't do them specifically necessarily. Um, I think you can choose which ones you want and why. Uh, you can see the returns there. Um, shares have well and truly done much better than um, uh, much better than others. So I, I, I would I would choose the ones you want. It's, it's, it's indicative and demonstrative rather than a recommendation for investing. But yeah, if you want to have some sort of mix and mirror it yourself, that's how you might start. If the question is how could I roughly mirror it, That'd be very, very, very roughly mirroring it. If you're asking how it's calculated, that's different again. The the methodology per uh, asset class is actually listed at the bottom of that Vanguard index chart. So if you want to have a look at that, pull that one up and go from there. Um, if you're asking me, is it a worthwhile investment strategy? If someone said to me, I'm going to do this, I wouldn't have a problem with it. I can't give you personal advice, as you know, Tom. Um, neither can Ram. Neither can Ram. But uh, you know, if you wanted that, that's fine. Uh, personally, I've said before, I think if you had a couple of ETFs, to be perfectly fine. And I'd probably, we were asked last week, uh, would I go Australia or international? I think I went for Australia in the end. But uh, if, if it was me and you want a super simple 30-year ETF, I think half in Australia, half in international is probably perfect. Uh, that's probably how I'd think about it if I was going to try and do it. But I don't have a really strong view on that. Ram, your thoughts on the question, answers and other ideas? 
Yeah, they're really, I mean, I love them because people are sort of thinking this through, but, you know, I do take a step back and just think we, we get to the point of splitting hairs. Mm. The conversation yeah. needs to be about, you know, the person who's going all in on some yeah. altcoin terror thing, you know, or whether they're deciding to regularly contribute to a decently low-cost broad-based ETF. Yeah. Now, we tend to, within our industry, people will have all these arguments. Oh, no, this index on that, and it's like, yeah. God, yeah. you know. That's not – we're all winners. <laughs> yeah, we are all right, winners right, over here. Right. This is the camp of smart people yep. and we're all really smart and we're going to yeah, do really, really yeah, well. Yeah. And you might do half a percent better than me, compound over 30 years, yep. and maybe I'll do a little bit better than you, but none, none of us are making dumb decisions. The top 10 people arguing about who is the world's richest man misses the point. Yeah, they're all fine. <laughs> exactly. They are all fine, you yeah. know, and, 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 and I really don't want to weigh too much into it because what – Yeah, right. They're all smart decisions. Now, if if the conversation was, hey, guys, should I put some money into these ETFs or my mate starting mm. up a <laughs> uh, algorithmic trading business on yeah. on Thai small cap unlisted, you know, like, well, yeah. you know, one is vastly superior to the other. Like, we're, 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 we're fiddling, we're fi- we're fiddling at the edges, <laughs> yeah, I think, right. with this kind of stuff. So yeah. it, it comes, it gets to a point where it's kind of just a matter of opinion and, yeah. and I respect all of those opinions that are broadly right. And if you want to start talking about, you know, investing in emu farms, well, now I've got something to say. <laughs> yes, you like emu farms. I mentioned that before. I do like emu um, farms. Yes. Apologies I, I, to anyone who's running a highly. There's probably someone out there who for the last 30 years has an incredible business of running emu farms and they just bang their head on the wall every time I say it. So Farming apologies. feral goats is remarkably profitable apparently. Oh, there you go. I learned that. Yes. Is that not an oxymoron to farm something that's feral? Uh, well, maybe I should say cull or harvest to whichever way you want to say it. But yes, okay. the, the, be, okay. being able to uh, uh, round up and either ship out or kill the, the feral goats on your property is is, is actually a very profitable endeavor. There you go. Apparently goat meat is, uh, is expensive. Uh, sorry, just really, really random when you talk about emu farms. I was thinking about goats. There you go. Mate, uh, let's, should we move on? Probably best, right? <laughs> I do like a good goat curry, but yes, please. let's. Do let's you? I've never had goat curry. Oh, do yourself a favor. Really? Okay. I oh my to- god, yeah. Yes. Twenty thousand. I've never had the never had the meat, so I've kind of never bothered trying it. But there you go. I will, oh, I will put it on my good. I'll put it on my list. Let's go with yeah. a question. This is speaking of outside our um, ability to forecast. Hi, Scott and Ram says someone whose name I haven't been given. Uh, loving the show and thoroughly enjoyed Scott going off on his Trump tangent last week. Was that you or me? <laughs> oh, that was you. Did I go on a Trump tangent? <laughs> I um, probably did. But I don't it remember. sounds like us, doesn't it? Well, it's definitely it us. Like I'm just not sure which one of us. <laughs> so much so that I replayed that section twice. Very funny. Well, I'm claiming it then. Um, I, again, I wish I had a name here. I have an email address, but I'm not going to read it, obviously. Uh, and there's no first name in the email address. So I was hoping you could possibly give me a bit of assistance in working out how much I can afford to borrow as a home loan. Man, talk about circle of competence. We're looking at a house that is valued at $1.4 million. To buy the house, we would need to get a loan of 700 grand. We can currently afford the repayments for this loan comfortably on the current interest rate. However, if the interest rates keep going up, there would be a point where we would struggle or where we wouldn't be able to afford them. So my question to you is when calculating what I can afford, how much leeway do I need to calculate in the interest rate? 2%? If I can't afford more than a 2% interest rate increase to the current interest rate of 2.5%, should I not take out the loan? What would you do? Any advice on this topic would be helpful. Thanks for your help, and as always, full on. Gosh, what I'm a great question! I'm going to throw this question. to you first, mate, because I, <laughs> I give you the hard ones, generally speaking. So, what would I mean? Again, we obviously can't Can give I? personal advice. I'd be really, 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 really clear. We're going to mm. we're going to give some answers here. We're not promising you these things are going to work out. Please don't. Please don't go and buy a house or don't buy a house based on what we say next. Anyone, including the person who asked the question. But other than that, go on, mate. 
Can I just clarify? So was it saying that the that they could afford an extra 2% on top of current rates yeah. and after uh, that it gets hard? They don't say that specifically. They say there would be a point where we would struggle or we wouldn't be able to pay the loan. And then they say, should okay. we use 2%? So they don't, they don't imply that oh, 2% I see, is I see. that okay. number. They're okay. just saying, how much should we add to the rate to kind of get a sense of what the maximum should be so we can work out affordability? Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Well, the, the hard thing is here is that um, – and I'm not saying this is going to happen or I even expect this is going to happen. I mean, we there is a potential future out there where rates go up 8%. Yeah. You know? So we can There's another one. about range of outcomes and probabilities, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it could, it could go up 15. Yeah. Could, you know, that yeah. could be the I – mean, I don't think so, by the way, but it could. It's possible. Yeah. And there's other scenarios where it just actually goes down again, mm-hmm. right? This is, this is really hard. So you you need – it's like those three most important words – is margin of safety, margin of safety, yeah. margin of safety. We, we yeah. don't know. Yeah. So it comes back to a risk tolerance kind of thing. The more relaxed, the, the better you want to sleep at night, the bigger that margin of safety. Now, of course, there's a compromise there because you might say, well, I want to sleep really well. Well, then you add a 20% margin of safety and guess what? You never buy a house. Mm-hmm. So, you know, where, where do you put the slider between those two extremes? And that's a very, very personal question. I would say, and this, so this is just me, I would be. I would personally want probably a, an ability to weather at least another five percent. Mm. Now, that, that that don't mistake that for thinking. Oh, Andrew thinks interest rates are going up another five percent. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Yeah. yeah. But I just that's me. That's me. I, I want enough of that margin of safety where I never want to be to a situation where the bank is kicking me out and selling my house from underneath me. Yeah. Because the future is just really, really, really unknowable. It seems incomprehensible that that could happen, mm. given a whole range of things and it probably is extremely yeah. unlikely yeah. but it's not yeah. impossible it's yeah. really not impossible and any student of history will tell you that these things have happened before mm. uh, uh, anyone of a of an older generation has has been through interest rate environments like that you know it happens um, so that's where I that, that that pick a line that's that you're comfortable with and and just understand that it's, it's just that compromise the bigger the margin the safer you are the less likely you are to buy a house and, and you know Make your peace with that because there, there is there is always a trade off. Yeah, I think that's right. I I struggle with this one, mate, because we talked before about the you know chance of going to zero and and you don't take the take the risk. Taking to an extreme, the interest rate range of outcomes possible, like even like stupidly unlikely, means no one ever buy a house ever because you'd never just in case rates went to forty percent, you better not buy a house. Mm. So it's a really, really hard one because that's not clearly not possible. It's not even not even a good idea, and so you're stuck with something in between. Um, I would say it's less like well, oh man, I'm trying I'm trying to give some context and then give an answer. So context wise, rates went to seventeen percent in 1991 ish because they could. And they could because we had a larger starting point and the reserve... So when the Reserve Bank puts rates up, they're trying to slow down the growth of the economy. They're trying to take money out of the economy by increasing the bill that we all have to pay for for our debts. And if you go from 5% to 10%, let's use simple interest because compound's too hard to do over over the air. You borrow 100 grand and your rate goes from 5% to 10%, you've doubled the amount of money you've got to put aside. And that, or pay an interest. And that means by definition, you can then spend less. Now let's go fast forward to a time when rates are, I'm going to make it 1% because again, I like to make my life easier. That five grand you're now spending has bought you, and this is exactly what has happened, a $500,000 house rather than a $100,000 house because rates fell so far. Your interest bill is still five grand. To go that to 10 grand, 
you don't take rates up by five percentage points. You only take it up by one percentage point. Because all of a sudden, if you go from one to 2%, that's now $10,000. So if you follow it along, my point is it's the change in interest cost in dollars the RBA is trying to influence, not the percentage for its own sake of the loan. Have I been reasonably clear there, Ram? Is that, is that kind of come yeah, across? Yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense. So ironically, the higher the asset price is and the lower the rates were when that was taken out, the less the RBA has to do. Each quarter of a point hurts now about three or four times as much as, as it would have hurt 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So it's very, 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 very unlikely we have anything like the rates that we used to have because the RBA, if, if, if the average rate for, the, for a home buyer got to 7%, not the official cash rate, the average rate, so it's two and a half-ish now, three, if it gets to seven, the economy would be in a deep recession for a very long time because there are very few Australians with a mortgage that they take out in the last five or seven years who could afford their interest cost to double because it is so bloody high already. So it doesn't mean it can't happen for some short periods of time if they want to really shock the economy, but they would they would literally just, in fact, that's exactly what did happen. The economy was pushed into recession in 1991. So that's why it's hard because if you're saying, would you always add two percentage points to the interest rate? Not normally, no. In 1991, it would have been stupid to add 2%, but I wouldn't have said do it either because five to seven wasn't much. Two and a half to four and a half is, a, is massive because it's a doubling of the interest cost almost. And so... We need to think about it in that context. It's the proportional increase in interest, not the percentage point change in interest rate. So were I an investor, uh, a, a, um, a property buyer, sorry, just an investor, the RBA said neutral on the official cash rates between 2 and 3%. I think it would be smart to think about three percentage points on top of what you're paying now as the, if you talk about confidence intervals and, and you know, kind of most likelies and, and whatever, uh, I think almost all future probable outcomes in the current rate cycle, I'm talking five to seven years, are probably between one and three percentage points more, would be my guess. So if I was going to maximise my margin of safety to Ram's point, within a reasonable realm, again, you use 40% if you want to make it absolutely impossible that you can't get done, but I would use three percentage points. How's that sound as a, as a way of thinking, Ram? Yeah. I mean, it's my point, right? Well, you choose your own adventure, you're comfortable with three. I want five. Someone will say two. Just just understand that there's a trade-off in any in all of yeah. those situations. Yep. You know, and and the future can be can be difficult to forecast. Yes, perfectly put. And 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 and, and, and unthinkable things happen all the time. Like <laughs> just to throw a cat amongst no, the it's, pigeons. No, it's exactly, and that's why and that's it's not so the same. No, and people, people yeah. will read too much into that. Going, oh, so oh, you're hinting that you? No, 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 no. Yeah. I'm just saying that you know, what was it? Three months ago, all of the the smartest people in the uh, in the economic profession were saying there's no interest rate rise mm. until 2024. Yeah, right? exactly. Just, exactly. That's right. That's right. You know, and now we're totally. talking about much faster and straight. It just it happens all the time. Totally. And and I'm and I'm so I'm not certainly going to get into that foolishness <laughs> of, of trying to do it. Good choice. So, Good choice. Yeah, put put that slider somewhere on that yeah. spectrum where you're where you're comfortable with. Just love it. There are risks. Nicely put. Nicely put. Mate, um, let's get a question from Scott, not me, a different Scott, who says, uh, hi, I have a question for the podcast, please. I invest mainly in a handful of my favourite ETFs. I'm wondering if you know how the distribution system works. Some of them pay very handy dividends or distributions. It lists a couple that have paid, NASDAQ pays 5%, uh, Global Climate Leaders 6%, Global Technology apparently currently pays 17%. Whereas other ETFs like the Moat ETF uh, and the S&P 500 pay only 1%. 
NDQ in particular has seen its distributions rise steadily over the past five years, including a doubling in payments last year. When we talk about good dividend payers, we generally talk about the banks, Telstra, etc. But some of these ETF distributions are really impressive and are now a significant factor in me deciding where to put my money. My question is, how are these distributions determined? Is it based on the trading that has happened within the ETF that year? Will they be cut dramatically in the bad years? Just keen for any insight in your opinion on these distributions and how reliable they are. Keep up the good work, Scott. Do you answer that question, mm. Ram? Well, yeah. So there are there are there are uh, some ETFs which are structured a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, but in ge- so so I'm going to generalise here. But in general, what will happen is a straight pass through. Mm-hmm. So they've got their little bucket of shares, and some of those shares will pay dividends. And when they pay dividends, they'll get pushed through to you. And sometimes that'll be a lot. Sometimes it won't be much. And sometimes it'll be in a quarter where a lot of companies pay dividends and then there'll be other quarters where no one paid dividends. And sometimes companies will cut their dividends, but it's just a straight pass-through as, as I understand it. Yep. Yeah, uh, basically with, with with some high and low again for the, for the activity that's in the ETF itself during the year, as, as Scott suggests, uh, I would... I'd be really, really careful about how you think about these yields. And just you asked the question, uh, Scott. So here's uh, beta shares, thankfully, happily give some annual numbers. Um, and it's gone between 0.35% and 3.36%. And it's gone up and down all over the place over time. Now, I, I don't I don't generally like to read, um, read quotes here. Uh, but here, j- just it's really important to think about this. So they talk about, the distribution return reflects the contribution to total investment return made by the fund's distributions. Makes sense. But it's calculated as the difference between the total fund return and the net asset value return. In other words, they calculate it backwards. So they look at the total return from the fund, back out the net asset value, and then what's left is the way they calculate the distribution. So it's not a dividend in the same way. Well, the dividend you get is the same or the distribution is the same, but the calculation isn't always spot on when you think about the way that's being created. It's it's, it's effectively the the net leftover bit <laughs> from what's uh, from what's actually coming. And in fact, if you look at the the distribution in percentage terms, here's where it's important because distribution unit, so distribution per unit in dollars rather than the percentage. Here's what I'll, I'll tell you about. Twenty one, they paid a dollar seventeen per unit in in uh, in July. In January, it was two point six cents a unit. The year before, sixty four cents. cents the time before, 43 cents and so on. So just be a little bit careful of the way you think about the yield. Uh, I would not put a lot of store in those those details. I don't know the ones for the other ones you mentioned, mate, uh, so I can't give you advice on those. But I wouldn't be banking, unless you're in literally a high-yield ETF specifically for that purpose. Um, and yes, will it be cut dramatically in the bad years? Yeah, absolutely. If they if they have companies that don't pay dividends, it'll, it, they are, as Rams says, a pass-through uh, mechanism. So be careful of that. Ironically, if the price falls and the dividends stay the same, you might even see distributions go up. It may actually be in the good years when the percentage yield falls because the prices go up so much. But then you're getting more if you already bought it uh, for the, the price rising. So sometimes the yield will go up because the price has fallen. It's one of those stories where if you'd have bought the NASDAQ ETF around, I think you mentioned it earlier, I don't know if it was on air or off here, I can't remember. Um, the, uh, the NASDAQ's fallen 25% from top to bottom. Uh, it was on air uh, in the last little while. Now that means the yield will have gone up. Uh, now buying it now would be great, but if you'd bought it you know, three months ago, four months ago when it was higher, uh, the yield you bought at is not going to help you. Hope that helps. 
Uh, a couple points. Yes, First, please. the one that was quoted as having a 17% yield is uh, BS to use the technical term. <laughs> there, is no, there is no sensible instrument yes. in the world right now that is yes. offering you a, a 17% yield. Thank so there'll be some quirky thing that's that. going on yeah. there. Like, put, put, it, put it this way. If there was, everyone would buy it because who wouldn't want a 17% low risk yield? You know, yep. We talked about risk adjustment. So some, sometimes you see, in fact, you see this a lot on the, on the market. And this is the trouble with screeners and stuff. You say yeah. to your computer, yeah. hey, go find me something with a yield over 10%. <laughs> find it. That's right. But what it does is that the computer mm. says, okay, mm. this company paid, you know, a dollar last year. Yeah. Uh, shares are now uh, $10. So there's a 10% yield. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, but they- All kinds of things may have happened there. It may have been that they had a a special dividend paid out. It may have been that since then the the company's now gone into liquidation. It's just, you know, whatever was paid out in in the past is no guarantee. Companies cut dividends all the time, right? So there's a a very good rule in investing and in life, which is if it's too good to be true, it's probably Mm. too good to be true. Sometimes (laughs) there are very rare exceptions, in which case you've just found free money. But free money is is doesn't generally exist, so so be aware, um, yeah. be aware of that. Um, worth saying other- too, mate. Oh, go on, yeah. go on. No, no, please, please. I was going to say worth saying too that the tech one in particular, for example, the companies it includes are NXP Semiconductor, Intel, Fortive, VMware, Microsoft, Sensata, Blackboard. Trust me when I say they are not paying seventeen percent yields any of them. So there's nothing, there's nothing sustainable in that number uh, unless something else is being done. So when you say the BS, by the way, we're not blaming the provider. We're saying the oh, number no. shouldn't be relied upon as a likely payout figure. So just be careful with that. Yes. Yep. Very true. Um, and, and the other thing I was just going to say with yields is I think this people misunderstand this a lot mm-hmm. is that the better income investment, generally speaking, unless you are really someone who is living year to year on your income stream. So someone in retirement, it's, it's different. I get it. Mm-hmm. For the rest of us, uh, I would far prefer a 3% yield where the dividend grows at 10% per year. That's a good point too. Than a, than a 7% yield where the dividend maybe only grows half a percent each year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't do the maths verbally, but but take my word for it. <laughs> yeah, one, right. in year one and year yeah, two yeah. and year three, okay, you're yeah. better off. But over the over the term, and, and so that when, coincidentally enough, when you look back at, you say, what were the best dividend stocks hmm. over the last 10 years? They weren't the stocks that had a high yield 10 years ago. Yeah. They were the lower perform- lower yielded stocks, but it's just that the gov- the companies were so wonderfully run, mm. with just gushing cash flow all over the place, that they just increased their dividend year after year after year after year. And so you just got this wonderful income stream. Um, so just yeah, bit of bit of nuance there. So it, it's it's it, there are yield traps that you can fall into. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. All right, um, let's uh, move on to another question. I think we'll get a question from Frank. He says, hi, Scott and Ram. He says, P.S. Frank, your resident stalker here. Thanks, Frank. Question four for the last year. First name only, please. Thank you for so- asking so many great questions, Frank. We're pleased to be able to answer them for you. Sometime back, he says, I posed the question regarding using margin lending to buy index ETFs, which you kindly answered with a pretty big depends and a lot of know thyself. I think it's quoting you there, Ren. I did mention in my previous question that on the next dip, I will probably back up the truck. Well, that dip is here and I will update you by saying after your answers to my previous question, I reduced my position by a little as I thought the market was getting bubbly and your comments made me revisit my risk appetite. And I thought it prudent to decrease my LVR to create a larger margin of safety. They are, that is music to my ears, Frank. Well, the dip is well and truly here, he says with four exclamation marks. I've taken quite a bath 
on the NASDAQ ETF we've just talked to, uh, either I'm geared into. And it's not very pretty for the ASX 200 and all US ETF either. The pain is multiplied by my extreme opportunities holdings. The numbers are getting red and they are getting reasonably large. Having said all that, I'm happy to say I've not been forced to sell on margin. Excellent. And I've been able to hold my temperament and not sell voluntarily. A lot of thanks goes to your reinforcement every weekend as I listen to your podcast on my ride on mower. I haven't had the fortitude to back up the truck, but I have at least wheeled in the barrow, I like that, and bought more most weeks over the last couple of months. Thanks for guiding me through this, even though you didn't know you were. Our pleasure. So my question, says Frank, you may have covered this before, but I've discovered there's two ETFs, GEAR and GGUS, which are ETFs that invest in the ASX 200 and the largest 500 companies in the US with the stated charter of gearing internally at 50 to 65% and no possibility of a margin call. I've done some research, but don't really understand the mechanics behind this. And more importantly, it seems to me to be safe unless somehow beta shares goes broke. Can you give me your expertise on the safety here? I've made a small investment at each, but, it, uh, but I think if it's very secure, then it fits within Scott's stated position on borrowing for shares that he's occasionally stated, quote, if I could borrow at a low interest rate and be guaranteed no margin calls, then I would back up the truck. I'm sure I just misquoted you, but essentially I think you're in favour of risk-free gearing as you can ride the dips and believe in the long-term growth of the market. I think, he says, this avenue might be a safe way to use gearing, even if only for buying indices. Thanks again for the calm you both convey each week in this dip. I'm sure it's difficult as you're both, like many of us at the moment, swimming amongst the weeds. It is very much appreciated. Cheers from Frank. Uh, Frank, I'll, I'll jump in first and then Ram can throw his thoughts in on top of that. Um, I have said before, I want to say really, really, really clearly that you need to think about two levels of extraction, uh, abstraction here. The first is, is there a margin call for the unit holder, the fund investor, that is you? Question mark. And in this case, there's not. What you don't know necessarily, or you might know, but what you need to think about that second level of abstraction is, what is the fund's internal requirement to make good on any borrowing to its lenders? So you can't be called for more money, but if you're in a situation where you had a geared ETF and that geared ETF was forced to sell internally to meet its funders' requirements, that ETF could still go to zero without you being needing to put in more money. Now, on one level, that limits your downside to 100%. <laughs> on the other level, less 100% is still exactly zero. Now, you're not going to be, you're not going to have to force to throw more money in. So it's better than being geared personally, as long as, you know, because your, your liability is limited effectively as an investor rather than the person who owes the money to the bank. So there is some it's lower risk than taking it out yourself. But it's absolutely, unless you know for sure, and I don't know this product, so I, I don't want to state on its behalf, but be really, really careful. Because if it has to, if it's going to be forced to sell its securities to meet its own debt repayments, then it can go to zero itself. So you still hold it. You haven't had to put any extra money, but it still could be worth as little as zero if the market goes against it, if the borrowing costs are too high, and or if it's forced to meet those uh, margin calls internally within the fund. So think about margin calls twice. To be really clear, there is, is the investor on the hook? No. But is the fund on the hook? Maybe. And if it is, it could still go to zero internally. Your thoughts, Ram? It's just hard to know. Like, I'm not familiar with the product, so um, I, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know exactly how they've structured it. Um, so, <laughs> so if it if it is if it is all those things, then it's hard. And you've got a very long time frame, then it's mm. hard to argue too much against it. It's just going to exaggerate everything. 
Yep. It's going to exaggerate the gains. Great. Yep. That's what you're. That's why why he's interested in it. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it, it'll also had you had you bought into that uh, mm. the start of the year. Mm. Your losses would be much greater than yeah. than what we're looking at now. It's what leverage does. It 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 it, it exaggerates mm, things for, yeah. for, for better or for worse. It's a double edged sword. So if you're comfortable with that, you're comfortable with the way that they've structured it. You're comfortable with the underlying counterparty risk that the entity is doing. It isn't going to go bankrupt, mm. uh, and you are in it for a longer term. Then yeah, yep. Um, but but things can still go wrong, and you know. It's not for me, and I, but I don't want to say it's not for everyone. Yeah. I've already said before yeah. that I've got a margin loan and how I use that and all, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. So each to their own, each to their own. It's yeah. not, it's not, it's not, I don't want to, I don't want to suggest for a second that it's, oh my gosh, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. It's not, <laughs> not even close, not even yeah. close. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, it, it I haven't, as I said, I'm not familiar with the product, but I bet you if I read the product and the marketing people would have put mm-hmm. together a very positive story yeah. on everything there. And a lot of it will be reasonable and some of it might be exaggerated and some of it, and then they, again, they just come back to this idea. There's no, yeah. there's no free lunch, yeah. Yeah. you know. That's right. I mean, here's the thing. If if it's if it borrows up to that 65%, I'm going to make it two-thirds because it makes my maths easier, but please know that it's not going to be exactly two-thirds. It's going to be less than that based on their own numbers. If the market falls by a third, your equity is wiped out. The fund is the fund is worth nothing, literally, because all assets that are left in the fund are required to pay the loan back. So the borrower is fine. The equity holder is literally wiped out. You don't have to pay more money. There's no margin call. Uh, so, Frank, I, the only thing I will say, just to add to Ram's point, my comment is, uh, you know, would I be geared? Yes, but... I don't have the, – the ETF itself could still be worth zero and at some point might be wound up or the assets might have to be sold to meet the repayments depending on what the deal is with the, with the lender itself. So if there are requirements internally within the fund for money to be paid back, that's going to happen exactly like a margin call at exactly the wrong time and you won't have the chance to recover. So you just want to be really careful. This goes to zero. They may wind up the ETF. Bitter won't go broke. But the, the ETF itself, the fund itself, remember BetaShares is the fund manager. They're great. Um, no, no problem with BetaShares as, as an organisation, as an entity. But the fund itself could still be wound up even if BetaShares continues if the asset value goes to zero. And it could happen if the gearing is too high and the market crashes and they have to repay the debt. Just It's that simple, right? So mm. there, is, there, there is not – that is not the example I'm talking about where, you know, I, if, having to repay the loan, is it called a margin loan, a margin call in, in air quotes? Probably not. Is it still the same thing? Yes. Do you have the chance to recover from it? If the answer is yes, well, maybe you hold it. Don't forget you got to pay interest on the way through. Um, so yeah, I, I would mm. I'd just be careful. Again, I, I'm not saying avoid it either. I don't know it well enough. I absolutely think you should look into it further. Absolutely speak to an accountant or read the PDS. Make sure you're really, really, really clear. Uh, but I want to just make the point is not as safe as it otherwise might appear, I think, if I'm reading your question correctly. So just, just take that into account. Mm. All right. Uh, next one is, again, for someone who I don't, hasn't given us a name. Hi, Scott. Thanks for your valuable information you provide through all the different medias you work in. I think you say I'm Eddie everywhere. Thank you, mate. It provides a great common sense approach for the long game of investing. I had a query for your fantastic podcast regarding some of the tech stocks and the punishment they have received this year. Question for you, Ram. Both in Australia and in the US. You hear a lot about bond rates, blah, 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 and the effect on the tech sector. Considering many of the growth tech sector hasn't been around during a period of inflation, couldn't one argue that it's a great time to be in the tech sector that is cash flow positive 
as they have good margins, oh, sorry, tech industrials, he says, as they have good margins, are less dependent on labour increases, have the ability to increase services in small, unnoticeable increments, have sticky customers, and have a far greater reach of products across the world. I would argue tech and inflation could be a great mix. It just hasn't happened yet. Please feel free to tell me I'm wrong and to stick with building houses with an unproductive labour component of 65% of a contract value. It's seriously mm. scary, says our correspondent. What do you reckon, mate? Is, is, is tech the uh, ready-to-boom, unloved, going to benefit from inflation off to the races? I mean, it's a, it's a nice combination. He says cash flow positive, good margins, less dependent mm. on labour increases. They can increase services in small unnoticeable increments, have sticky mm. customers, far greater reach of products. There's some really, really nice business uh, business model components there. Is, is now a is now the time for tech to shine? Uh, Don't say it depends. Come on, help me out. It depends. (laughs) I hate the term. So I'm I'm very, very heavily involved. Like uh, you know, I'm going to speak out both sides of my mouth. Most of the companies I invest in have a technology component to it. I love it, and I love it because Mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of nice characteristics there. But there, you know, Netflix is a tech company. Yes, Tesla's a tech company. Uh, Google's a tech company. They're three incredibly different businesses. exactly. So the industry loves to lump all this together and say tech. Yeah. And then they, and tech has these characteristics and tech is going to do this. And it's kind of like, you know, it's just, there are, so the answer to the question is it depends because, well, let, we need to, uh, this is why I'm very much what I call a bottom-up investor. Mm. Uh, I don't really care about sectors too much Mm -hmm. or I don't really care about, this and I just care about the actual individual business. And there'll be some businesses absolutely right now in the broader technology space that are dirt cheap and they're just great. And they've got all of those things that we've just mm-hmm. outlined. Yeah. And in five and 10 years, you'll look back and go, wow, what an incredible buy. Mm. And there'll be other companies labeled tech that probably <laughs> won't right. exist in five years' time. Yeah. You know, that, that, yeah. that notionally have a lot of these characteristics. Mm. So I think so it feels like I'm being a bit cute here, but I'm, I'm, I'm really dead serious. Like, look at mm. the specific business. If the business that you're talking about has all of those wonderful characteristics, will be around will be earning materially more, has all of these advantages that it can prosecute and you're getting all of these babies. There are a lot of babies been thrown out with the bathwater mm, mm. at the moment and uh, I think, yeah, I think there's some really compelling opportunities. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to start mentioning names because that gets, that, you know, mm. <laughs> where's the upside to me? <laughs> I, just get, <laughs> I just get a bunch <laughs> of hate mail when it goes Gosh. down a little bit further yeah. and no one remembers in five years' time. So it's kind of <laughs> do your all care, no responsibility. But, but you know. That's that's mm-hmm. that's the game we're in, and 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 this is this is why these kinds of periods are so fascinating, yeah. because while they are, un, uh, you can look at them and tear your hair out as an investor. It's unfair. Yeah. My, my com- I know that tech is on the nose, but this company here, which might be notionally sort of referred to as tech, is actually a great business. I mean, my goodness, their latest quarterly report just said that they tripled their revenue in the last twelve months. Mm-hmm. You know, they're at break even. They don't need to raise cap. What's wrong? What is what is wrong with the market? And you're sort of banging your head on the keyboard. <laughs> the answer might be well, actually nothing. And isn't yeah. that a wonderful thing? Isn't that a wonderful thing? It is. It find is. them. Go out there and find them. Go out there and find them. So I, I agree with you on tech, mate. I I am I am not. Uh, the, the ruler of the world, thankfully, for a whole lot of reasons, for a whole lot of people. But I would blow up the tech sector entirely as a concept, uh, and I'd reconstitute it with only those businesses that are fundamentally, probably either pure software 
and maybe even like a Microsoft gets in there or maybe hardware literally switches things that are, you know, if you're Cisco and you're making switches for computers or cabling, mm. then that's mm. tech, right? Mm. If, you're, if you're Telstra, you're in the infrastructure business. If you're Amazon, you're in the retail business. If you're Netflix, you're in the entertainment business. You know, I mean, realistically, is there any less tech used by Greater Union than Netflix? I mean, you know, they've got computers and cash registers and projectors and is that a technology? You know, what's tech? Is it tech just because it's new and cool and fun and uses the internet? Well, yeah. guess what, dude? I'm buying my, I buy my groceries, either click and collect or home delivery from Woolies 90% of the time. Does that make Woolies mm. a tech business? Of course it bloody doesn't. That's a stupid idea. Mm. But yeah, Fortescue Metals is a, is a tech business because right, exactly. they're developing green hydrogen. Oh, driverless you know? trains. I mean, how, yep. how cool. I mean, you know, if, if, te- if Tesla is driverless cars and, and Fortescue is doing driverless trains, they're both technology companies, right? Of course they're not yep. stupid. And by the way, Tesla's a car company. It's not a, well, at least a, a hardware company. It's not a, it's not a tech company. So. Uh, I disagree with you there, but let's not go down uh, that rabbit hole. It's not a technology company. Um, <laughs> anyway. So that's the that's yeah. Look, so he. I think to your point, Ram. I think that's right. I um, I would think, dear question, whose name we don't have, um, and you make the right question point, Ram, about going and finding it and thinking about don't don't be don't be sector driven. Um, to that point, I think you want to just understand when it comes to inflation, simply a question of which business is. Oh, sorry, what what is their capacity to pass on cost increases? That's the, only, that's the only inflation question you need to ask yourself is what impact will inflation have on margins? Very, very, very few businesses will have greater margins as a result. Some will be able to maintain their margins because they've got pricing power. Mm. Others are going to have to eat the margin. That, that's, and, and, you know, the, the other things you talk about, about um, not you, Ram, but Al, Al, Al Utsna, uh, you know, good margins, uh, serve, uh, increased service in small and noticeable increments, that's all true. That's mm. true regardless of inflation. So I wouldn't say inflation is important they will be as impacted if they can't pass on prices anything else. They might still grow anyway at a greater or lesser degree because of inflation, but that's a different question. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily make it about inflation. I would simply look, look at this business for sure. And if you could say, look, this is a business that's going to keep growing. Uh, growth is particular. So the one thing I will say, in an inflationary environment, growth is wonderful because it helps fractionalize your costs a whole lot better. If you can keep your costs fixed in terms of not literally fixed, if you're going to pay more for wages or, or petrol or for freight or something, then you can't do that. But if you're growing and you can fractionalize those costs over a larger base, you're kind of, you know, that's operating leverage at play. That is, operating leverage is one of the greatest ways to offset inflation. Pricing power is number one, operating mm-hmm. leverage is number two. If you can say, well, okay, costs are going up, but I've doubled in size. And so I'm paying, you know, 15% more for my office space, but I've doubled my revenue or I'm paying 20% more for my oil, but I've doubled my revenue, then that's how you get the operational leverage to, to play regardless of what happens to your cost. So that's growth is really, really, really important always, but more so in an inflationary environment, in my view. Yep. Hey, another marginalized question, Ram. It must be, the, must be the time for it. Um, Craig says, hi, Scott and Ram Page. Here's a question I've been wrestling with for some time, and I keep flip-flopping on my answer. I know you can't give personal advice, but I hope you can indicate a general direction. In 2016, I took out a margin loan and it's now approximately 30% of the value of my portfolio. It served me well in getting my portfolio started. My interest payments are manageable, and my margin loan security is now large enough to not cause me any stress of a dreaded margin call. I'm in my mid-40s, so I've got plenty of working life and compounding time left. So my question is, when do I ever begin to pay it down? Mm -hmm. My current thoughts are that any excess cash I have is better invested than paying down the loan. But this just means I'll have this debt forever. Perhaps this is why you guys are not Margin Loan's biggest fans. 
Other times, I think of paying it down very slowly with a small payment each month or even using dividend payments to pay it down, which will take years and years. Thanks for all your general advice and entertainment as always. That's from Craig. Great, really great questions, Craig. Really, really great, great question. Um, what do you think? You've, you've said before you got a marginal line. What's your, what's your thought about how, when and if uh, someone, we can't tell Craig what he should do, but someone should pay down a, a marginal loan? For those who haven't heard me speak about it before, I, I kind of use it the way I use a credit yeah. card um, in the For sense the that yeah, <laughs> I wish I got points from it. Um, yeah. it just, it's handy yeah. because yeah. of various money's tied up in this and that. And it's yep. just like if I look at the market, like now, hey, I want to buy some shares. Yeah, oh, boom, yeah. I just, just draw down on the loan and bang. And then yeah. I can sort of move some things around in the background. So I don't generally carry debt with it, but I find it a very handy tool. Same with my credit cards. I've actually got a couple of credit cards. I don't think I've, I've probably paid $2 in interest in my entire life on my credit card. Um, but it just means that I can... I can shop online and I can do all these. You know, I know there's debit cards before anyone smart Alex pointed out. Yes, but it's just handy, right? And um, uh, so it's very different to sort of say, I think credit cards are great mm. and you should leverage up on them and have this huge 20% interest bill versus yeah, yeah. using it and then paying it in full each month. Makes sense. So just, just to make that point. I actually think it's actually a very deep question and I, I wrestle with it too. I flip-flop. I said to you off air before, I'm not entirely sure that someone who has a very big and high quality asset mm, base mm. shouldn't never sell mm. and should just uh, take debt against it mm. because with inflation, the value of that debt gets smaller and smaller yeah, yeah. and the value of your asset goes up and up. And then in 10 years time, refinance it and then refinance and just refi- and always have debt mm, mm. because it's in it's in this it's in this it's in this uh it's inflating away while the value of your asset grows and I just never touch my debt I suppose too right and there's all of well. these clever things yeah. you can do you know yeah. yeah um so if i'm jeff bezos that's probably a really smart thing to do he doesn't sell his amazon mm. shares that often he probably has loans against it you know um uh does that work for the mere mortals mm. i i there will come a point where it's just like the, the sums involved the costs the you know it just yeah. it doesn't become it doesn't become practicable yeah. um uh so what am i trying to say so i think in i think in 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 broad terms mm. Ask yourself, as long as you are miles away and very, very unlikely to have a margin call, as long as you can always afford that interest, maybe you never pay it back. Mm. Like literally never, mm. you know, and just you die with your debt. <laughs> you could do that, right? And then maybe you're, maybe the people inheriting your wealth go, oh, I'm not comfortable. I'm going to sell some shares and pay it off instantly. Mm. But they'll be paying off debt that they took in 2022, which is virtually nothing in the year 2080 or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on an asset base that's grown phenomenally well, you know the, the math is really fascinating. The only, the only, but of course, I just, I've just said multiple times this episode, there's no such thing as a free lunch, and <laughs> and the risk is, and I'm sure this, I'm preempting you a bit here, which would be, <laughs> oh, that all sounds great, Andrew, but until Great Depression v 2.0 comes along and wipes you out. Mm. And that is a very real risk to consider. Goes so, back to our house price at interest at forty percent, right? There's, a, there's always a chance of those out, outliers to be mindful of. Unlikely, but not impossible. Yeah. So I'm not yep. going to be as hardline as you thought I might be around, which is really enough. Mm-hmm. Um, if, here's the thing, I guess, I don't know the circumstances we're talking about and we don't want to know because it makes it easier for us if we don't know them because uh, we can't give personal advice. Generally speaking though, if your asset base is growing because of the reasons you've just talked about, Ram, and moreover, if you're actually adding money regularly to your investment account, so let's assume you're not, your entire investment dollars aren't just funding your margin loan interest. If it is, that's mm-hmm. slightly different. But if you're adding money regularly and paying the interest bill, 
Then, and by the way, assets continue to climb as I expect them to. Then your LVR will fall meaningfully over time. You, you kind of made that point, you know, um, by by definition, Ram, or by by uh, by extraction, by saying, "Well, look, you know, your asset value is worth a lot more. Your, your debt's no, not changed, so your LVR fund kind of drops as a result." And the lower it goes as a percentage, the less of an issue it becomes because the further shares would have to fall to be even be close to an issue. Mm. So I'm 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 kind of in your camp of I wouldn't say never. Um, let me get back to when in a second. The the what to pay it off, if you like, would be if you compare the interest rate with the likely returns. So we've come through an environment where rates are bugger all. You're still paying, I don't know what's the marginal land interest, five or six percent at the moment, I suppose, is it? Um, yeah, about that. So let's say you're paying that now. Now, if if the official cash rate goes up to two and a half percent, pick a number, then a six percent marginal line goes up to eight and a half percent, that's getting very close to the sort of return you might, or the bottom bottom range of the sort of return you might expect from your shares. And at that point, you're saying, "Well, hang on, how much how much risk am I taking in terms of the interest for the return I'm getting? If you can, if you're paying eight and a half and you're getting ten, then I mean, I guess there's there's there's, there's some margin there, some gap, there's some benefits, so you do it. But at that point, I'd be kind of like, well, you, you know, like you're taking a lot of risk with the debt we're talking about for a relatively marginal, if you excuse the pun, uh, increment. You know, how much risk do you take for a one and a half percent return, which is all you'd be getting? I don't know. I would. I don't know. I'd be super keen. If I thought I was get could get ten percent and pay six and take tax off the six, so it's what that call it for, just to make my life easy. Um, that's a that's a pretty huge gap, and so yeah, that's absolutely worth doing. That's back to the last question about my point about you know what I take what I take a super low you know um, I borrow a million dollars at two percent guarantee for forty years if I get it today with no margin calls because I just you know mm. I, I, mm. it would just make sense right, um, but I would be a little bit careful about as that rate interest rate rises what's the incremental upside you're getting for the risk you're taking. And that, by definition, gets smaller the higher interest mm. rates go. So mm. that, that's the what. The when, for me, at retirement is when I do it. While I'm adding to it, while I'm building a portfolio, I'd, I'd leave it there. And at some point, I'd be like, you know what? I'm now at retirement. Just And mostly because you don't want your life to be too complex. As you say, Rem, you can absolutely mm. die with a whole lot of debt. There's no mathematical or, or theoretical downside to that. In terms of life, like I don't want to be worrying about a margin loan debt and I'm not working anymore and I don't want my income to be variable and I don't have to pay this bloody debt off and just the psychic value, it's sort of like getting rid of the mortgage, right? It'd be, it'd be, I've said before, we put some money on the mortgage rather than buying shares with it. We put extra payments down. We could have kept that money out. It would have been would have made more mathematical financial sense because I expect mm. that I'll make more per, you know, percentage-wise in my investments than, than I saved on the mortgage. We paid it down. Why? Because it feels better having less debt. Just that's pure and simple. So that's when I would actually do it, but that's that's just a personal view. Uh, but the what is the closer the uh, the interest cost and the potential return become, the less attractive a margin loan should be because you're taking risk for a relatively small upside, in my view. Mm. Yep. Nice. A question from Stasi, uh, and Stasi, as always, you have my eternal damnation because you are too young. I'm a 21 year old investor. So Stasi has been investing since the day I turned 18. Yes, on my birthday. That is really cool. Actually, I love that. Just had a question for the Motley for Money podcast. I've come across a new service that I wanted to get your thoughts on. It states you can earn, make 4.01% per annum return just by depositing money in the account. This money is compounded daily and can be withdrawn at any time. So far, so good. It works by converting my Australian dollars into stable coins. And these coins are lent to a third party. In exchange, they pay me a 4% return. As a young person with limited income, I hate seeing my portfolio go down. I was wondering if this was a viable brackets, not a scam, investing option that could act like a high-interest bank account. Thanks in advance and full-on Stasi. You're our resident crypto expert, Andrew. Are you going to uh, lend some money, some money to uh, buy stable coins? Nope. Why not? Um, 
Oh, it's such a it's such a big question. <laughs> There's there is. I replied to one of your tweets in the week you did. with I a meme, that. which I thought was very funny. And you and did. Crypt- Crypto gets thrown around. Yeah, it does. And you know, and it's like there's Bitcoin, and then there's everything else, right? Yeah. So that's that's yeah. my that's my view on it. Yeah. Um, the the there is there is one perfect thing, to quote Michael Saylor, and then there's a whole bunch of rubbish, <laughs> and and that's a deep statement. And when you're on holidays, mm-hmm. you've already committed to let's pre-recording a Bitcoin episode. So <laughs> look, look forward to that, everyone, because I will I will do nothing but talk about it? Bitcoin. I, I might for say, a, maybe you'll think about it, but. <laughs> no, that's why I said it on air. It's like, yeah, ah, no, yeah, I know. Cornered you, cornered you. <laughs> um, so, the, the, so, uh, so, if anyone who's been following this space, you would have seen what happened with Terra yep. and Luna yep. uh, recently. If those words don't mean anything to you, don't worry, you haven't missed out on anything. Um, <laughs> well, you've actually good. avoided a massive loss of what you have done. So, it's a stable coin, and most stable coins work by you would deposit for every dollar you deposit, they would issue a token. <laughs> And oh. it's redeemable, right? It's like the gold dollar. standard, yeah, yeah. except in crypto. Yeah. The trouble with it is they're all in unregulated kind of entities that are offshore, and so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of question marks out there mm. that it's like, is is it really a dollar for a token? Like, what's happened with that yeah. money? Where is that place? Is get it back? Legitimate yeah. questions. A lot of questions about it. So, so mm. just quickly, mate, if you if you deposit a dollar in the Commonwealth Bank, the Commonwealth Bank gives you an electronic record that says you can redeem your your digital account balance for a dollar when mm. you want it back. And yeah. it's obviously, we all think that's the dollar, right? It's not really. CBA doesn't no. keep that one dollar. It says, you've deposited a dollar. I give you a digital statement that says you have, you can redeem that dollar at some point. It's, it's, it's not a stable coin at all, but not too dissimilar. Stable coin should well, work the same way, an right? Excellent you deposit, analogy. Yeah, yeah, you deposit your buck. You, you, you have a stable coin. You can then go and put that stable coin back in the bank, get your dollar back out, you walk away. Yeah. Unless, as you say, it's unregulated and screwed up. <laughs> it's, there are a lot of these entities that are held <laughs> offshore because the US just doesn't have the compliance codes and the, the regulations and stuff. It mm-hmm. really desperately needs to do it, right? Like it's just, it, this This is here. So you, just, you can either ignore it or you can regulate it. And I would say mm-hmm. it needs to be regulated and be good for everyone. Um, but but this this other one was interesting because it wasn't it wasn't backed that way. It was it was an algorithmic stablecoin, and it worked on a whole bunch of arbitrage <laughs> assumptions and fa- fancy maths. It's reminded me a bit of long term capital oh, management. Yeah, a lot of people yeah, Google right, that. Right, right. So this is this is this is a product put together by eight or so Nobel laureates that could mm. never blow up. And <laughs> cut to the chase, it blew up. And this was an algorithmic stable coin that would always peg to the dollar one for one that could never blow up mm-hmm, and it mm-hmm. blew up. And it blew up spectacularly and it, drived, yeah. drove, it destroyed a lot of value. So, again, I, I've said it before this episode, if it's too good to be true, it's yeah. too good to be true. The, this, this crypto space is just full of stuff that will ultimately go to zero. It is full of absolute rubbish. We don't. It's opaque. Mm. It's unsure. There is massive counterparty risk. No one understands what's going on, and those that do are smart enough to avoid it, or they're in it because they're, they're, <laughs> yeah, ma- or they're right. in it because they're making money off all the other people that don't. Yeah, yeah. Don't do it. Don't do it. Mate, you know, you might look back and go, oh, "I could have done that and made a lot yeah. of money." Maybe you could have, but you're, you're playing a game of chicken. If you're really interested in crypto, buy Bitcoin. <laughs> Everything um, else you can forget about. You, you mentioned Luna, mate. We're not going to go detail on it, but I will simply say that a million dollars worth of Luna last week. Was worth three thousand dollars. I think it was yeah. one day or Tuesday. Yeah, I don't know what's going up or down since then. Ninety-seven. Uh, this was a stable coin in theory, allegedly, as you've as you've highlighted, Andrew. Uh, yep. Got from a million dollars to three thousand dollars. People lost houses, cars. Um, unfortunately, some people actually lost their lives because of the the horrible losses. Um, Stasi, if someone's going to offer you four percent, you've got to ask yourself why would they do that? <laughs> and I don't know why. Uh, I can't. I can't. Don't want to assume why. 
Uh, but if you if they can get half a percent in the bank, if they're lucky, uh, why would they give you four percent? Maybe because maybe it's worth it. You know, um, you can you can make some really high risk loans, some really high risk people, and get fifteen percent per annum if you're lucky because you're the last lender of last resort. And if they pay you back, then you're a genius. If they don't pay you back, well, you took the risk mm. on. Uh, if if the bank's paying you a quarter of a percent and someone else is paying you four percent, you got to ask yourself why. And uh, I think Andrew has been very very clear. I'll echo those comments. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe it's the best idea ever. Maybe it's going to be terrible and there's massive, as you say, counterparty risk, Andrew, where you don't get your money back or you get some of it back or something horrible happens. Uh, yeah. I, again, I don't know this. I don't know the circumstances. Don't know the party. I don't want to know because I don't want to um, get myself in trouble by. Uh, <laughs> by saying something about someone I'm going to get sued for. Um, yeah, just why, yeah. why would someone give you 4% to, to do that? If you don't know the answer, um, then it's a pretty good chance that someone's taking some risks that you don't want to be involved in. you got to be careful too because crazy things can perpetuate for a long time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and you know, so, so we sort of make these comments and then two years later mm-hmm. someone will write into the pod and say, I remember when you said this and this yeah. didn't happen ago it was like not, so I'm not saying it's imminent or it's going to but it's just you've mm. got to be aware that that risk exists you know so you talked about risk adjusted returns earlier on and it's sort of yeah. like okay I've taken a higher risk and I'm getting I'm, I'm getting a, I'm getting a higher return and for that I'm taking a higher risk mm. now some things you can sort of have a reasonable lens into the risk that you're taking with these mm-hmm. kinds of things brand new unregulated uh, cross collateralized and with really interesting new novel instruments that no one, or least of all regulators, uh, have their heads around. It, to, to me, to me, it's just it seems a little bit too hard and not wor- like if you were saying that hey, I can actually get thirty percent. It's like okay. <laughs> Well, I still wouldn't condone it, but it's like you know, <laughs> yes. now I'm a little bit more interested because at least the upside is enough to sort of compensate me for some of the risk. But for that, for what did you say, four percent and and all of that? Yeah, apparently four no. point four point oh one. Appro- apparently, yeah, I saw one the other day. Maybe it was the same one. It was APRA based, regulated, regulated, and so maybe there's some guarantees around. So again, the devil will be in the detail in all of this. But just, so I've been I, I've been slightly disingenuous, mate. I haven't named the the coin or the provider because I don't want to get us in trouble. Uh, but I have just had a look at this thing, and the price of that stable coin went from eighty cents to one point seven dollars eighteen, down to uh, seven point three cents, and is now seventy nine cents. Doesn't sound very stable. That's the thing, right? Uh, I will also say the disclosure on the website suggests that stable coins aren't very volatile or rarely volatile, I think is the phrase they used. Uh, I, I don't know that that's particularly responsible advertising, but that's up to them and up to the regulator. Well, this is unregulated. That's the other freaking problem is at the moment our six saying, well, we don't do crypto. Sorry, you're on your own. Uh, that's uh, Honestly, mate, that'd be good enough for me to just give it a miss. Like no, no one's looking over these people's shoulders. Yep. Yep. So the that, other comment that was interesting there in, in the in uh, was it Stasi? Um, yes. Said um, uh, as someone who was twenty one. Yeah. I don't want to lose. Like I'd say, as someone who is someone. <laughs> yeah. Do you can know? I, I just can I, I tell I, you the reverse though, mate. Yeah. When you're t- when you're twenty one, you can you can lose to the market every year for the rest of your working life and still retire a millionaire if you put a little bit of money aside every week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like people say, oh, I'm young, I take a risk. You like, beat, no, you no, beat no, me no. to the punch. Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. Go on. Well, no, is it? But I, I just say, like, A, never be in a situation where you kind of like people, oh, I can afford to lose, so it doesn't matter. I think that's yeah, always yeah. dangerous thinking. But you're exactly right, mate. It is, in fact, now is the time to take risk. And when I say take risk, I don't mean buy algorithmic stable coins. <laughs> I mean, 
<laughs> I mean, go all in on the market, right? Yeah, Put every yeah. every cent that you earn, whenever yes. you've got a spare dollar, yeah, yeah. chuck it in, chuck it in an ETF. And come back in, in if I'm yeah, yeah, if I'm alive in in forty years, come back and thank me. You know, yeah. In, oh yeah. And, um, Absolutely. Mate, the number of people should be buying us drinks while we're in a retirement home. I expect a long line out the front door. Just just yeah. quiet listeners. Yeah, yeah. Mind yeah. you. Yeah. All right. Mate, we're done. <laughs> we're done. Uh, yep. So good election result, bad election result. What did, what did we decide? Uh, come back next week and I'll let you know. <laughs> Until next week. Full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under Financial Services Licence 400691. Listener.